Section 10 of the Black Experience in America, 18th through 20th century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donald Fitzgill Jr. Black Experience in America, 18th through 20th century by Various. Where the Negro Lives by Mary White Ovington and Francis Boas. It is 35 years since, in his symphony, Sidney Lanier told of the poor that stand by the inward opening door, trade's hand doth tighten evermore, and sigh their monstrous foul air sigh for the outside hills of liberty. Were Lanier writing this today, we should wonder whether New York's crowded tenements had not served as inspiration for his figure. The island of Manhattan, about eight miles long by two miles wide, with an additional slender triangle of five miles at the north end in 1905, housed 2,112,000 people. These men and women and children were not scattered uniformly throughout the island, but were placed in selected corners, 1,000 to the acre, while a mile or so away large comfortable homes held families of two or three. This was Manhattan's condition in 1905, and with each succeeding year more congestion takes place, and more pressure is felt upon the inward opening door. The Negro, with the rest of the poor in New York, has his part in this excessive overcrowding, the slaver in which he made his entrance to this land provided in floor space six feet by one foot four for a man, five feet by one foot four for a woman, and four feet by one foot four for a child. This outdoes any overcrowding New York can produce, but an ever-increasing cost in food and rent is bringing her interior bedrooms a mass of humanity approximating that of a slaver's ship. These newcomers, however, are not unwilling occupants, since unlike the slaves, they may spend their day and much of their night amid an ocean of changing and exciting incidents. If you are young and strong, you care less where you sleep than where you may spend your waking hours. From among the millions of New York's poor, can we pick out the Negroes in their tenements? This is not so difficult a task as it would have proved 50 years ago when the colored were scattered throughout the city. Today we find them confined to fairly definite quarters. A black face on the Lower East Side is viewed with astonishment, while on the Middle West Side it is no more noticeable than it would be in Atlanta or New Orleans. Roughly we may count five Negro neighborhoods in Manhattan, Greenwich Village, the Middle West Side, San Juan Hill, the Upper East, and the Upper West Sides. Brooklyn has a large Negro population, but it is more widely distributed and less easily located than that of Manhattan. Of the five Manhattan neighborhoods, the oldest is Greenwich Village. According to John Vier, once the most attractive part of New York, where the streets have a tendency to sidle away from each other and to take sudden and unreasonable turns, here one finds such fascinating names as Minetta Lane and Carmine and Cornelia Streets. These and neighboring thoroughfares grow daily and more grimy, 
However, and no longer merit John Vier's praise for cleanliness, moral and physical. The picturesque, friendly old houses are giving way to factories with high, monotonous fronts where foreigners work who crowd the ward and destroy its former American aspect. Among the old-time aristocracy bearing Knickerbocker names, there are a few colored people who delight in talking of the fine families and past wealth of old Greenwich Village. Scornful of the gibberish-speaking Italians, they sigh, too, at their own race as they see it. For the ambitious Negro has moved uptown, leaving this section largely to widowed and deserted women and degenerates. The once handsome houses, altered to accommodate many families, are rotten and unwholesome while the newer tenements of West 3rd Street are darkened by the elevated road and shelter vice that knows no race. Altogether, this is not a neighborhood to attract the newcomer. Here alone in New York, I have found the majority of adults, northern-born men and women who, unsuccessful in their struggle with city life, have been left behind in these old forgotten streets. The second section, north of the first, lies between West 14th and West 59th Streets, and 6th Avenue and the Hudson River. In 1880, this was the center of the Negro population, but business has entered some of the streets and Pennsylvania Railroad has scooped out acres for its terminal, and while the colored houses do not diminish in number, they show no decided increase. No one street is given over to the Negro but a row of two or three or six or even eight tenement shelter the black man. The shelter afforded is poorer than that given the white resident whose dwelling touches the black. The rents are a little higher, and the landlord fails to pay attention to ragged paper or to a ceiling which scatters plaster flakes upon the floor. In the 30s, there are rear tenements reached by narrow alleyways. Crimes are committed by black neighbor against black neighbor, and the entrance to the rear yard offers a tempting place for a girl to linger at night. A rear tenement is New York's only approach to the alley of cities farther south. There are startling and happy surprises in all tenement neighborhoods, and I recall turning one afternoon from a dark yard into a large, beautiful room. Muslin curtains conceal the windows, the brass bed was covered with a thick white counterpane, and on either side of the fireplace, where coal burned brightly in an open grate, were two rare engravings. It was a workroom, and the mistress of the house, steady, capable, and very black, was at her ironing board. By her sat the colored mammy of the storybook rocking lazily in her chair. She explained to me that her daughter found her down south, two years ago and brought her to this northern home where she had nothing to do for her daughter could make fifty dollars a month this home picture was made lastingly memorable by the younger woman's telling me softly as she went with me to the door i was sold for my mother down in georgia when i was two years old i ain't sure she's my mother she thinks so but i can't ever be sure Homes beautiful both in appearance and in spirit can rarely occur where people must dwell in great poverty, but there are many efforts at attractive family life on these streets. 
A few of the blocks are orderly and quiet. 37th Street, between 8th and 9th Avenues, is largely given over to the colored and is rough and noisy. Here and down by the river at Hell's Kitchen, the rioting in 1900 between the Irish and the Negro took place. Men are ready for a fight today, and the children see much of hard drinking and quick blows. The poorer the family, the lower is the quarter in which it must live, and the more enviable appears the fortune of the anti-social class. A vicious world dwells in these streets and makes notorious the section of New York. For this is a part of the Tenderloin District, and at night, after the children's cries have ceased, and the fathers and mothers who have worked hard during the day have put out their lights, the automobiles rush swiftly past bearing the men of superior race. Temptation is continuous, and the child that grows up pure in thought and deed does so in spite of his surroundings. Before reaching West 59th Street, the beginning of our third district, we come upon a Negro block at West 53rd Street. When years ago the elevated railroad was erected on this fashionable street, white people began to sell out and rent to Negroes, and today you find three colored hotels, the Young Colored, Young Men's, and Young Women's Christian Associations, the offices of many colored doctors and lawyers, and three large beautiful colored churches. The din of the elevated drowns alike the doctor's voice and his patients, the clients, and the preachers. From 59th Street, walking north on 10th Avenue, we begin to ascend a hill that grows in steepness until we reach 62nd Street. The avenue is lined with small stores kept by Italians and Germans, but to the left the streets, sloping rapidly to the Hudson River, are filled with tenements, huge double-deckers, built to within 10 feet of the rear of the 25-foot lot, accommodating four families on each of the five floors. We can count 479 homes on one side of the street alone. This is our third district, San Juan Hill, so-called by an onlooker who saw the policeman charging up during one of the once-common race fights. It is a bit of Africa, as Negroid in aspect as any district you are likely to visit in the South. A large majority of its residents are Southerners and West Indians, and it presents an interesting study of the Negro poor in a large Northern city. The block on 60th Street has some white residents, but the blocks on 61st, 62nd, and 63rd are given over entirely to colored. On the square made by the north side of 61st, the south side of 62nd Streets, and 10th and West End Avenues, 5.4 acres, the state census of 1905 showed 6,173 inhabitants. All but a few of these must have been Negroes, as the avenue sides of the block, occupied by whites, are short and with low houses. It is the long line of five-story tenements running 800 feet down the two streets that brings up the enumeration. The dwellings on the 61st and 62nd streets are human hives, honeycombed with little rooms thick with human beings. Bedrooms open into air shafts that admit no fresh breezes, only foul air carrying too often the germs of disease. 
The people on the hill are known for their rough behavior, their readiness to fight, their coarse talk, vice as abroad, not in an insidious form as in the more well-to-do neighborhood farther north, but open and cheap. Boys play at craps, unmolested, gambling is prevalent, and Negro loafers hang about the street corners and largely support the 10th Avenue saloons. But San Juan Hill has many respectable families, and within the past five years it has taken a decided turn for the better. The improvement has been chiefly upon 63rd Street, where two model tenements, one holding 100, the other 161 families, have been opened under management of the city and suburban homes company, the larger one having been erected by Mr. Henry Phipps, planning for a 4% return on their investment. These landlords have rented only to respectable families, and the rule has changed the character of the block. Old houses have been remodeled to compete with the newer dwellings, street rows have ceased, and the police captain of the district, we are told, now counts this as one of the peaceful and law-abiding blocks of the city. When its other blocks show a like improvement, San Juan Hill will no longer merit its belligerent name. The Lower East Side of Manhattan, a many-storied mass of tenements and workshops where immigrants labor and sleep in their tiny, crowded rooms, was once a fashionable American district. At that time, Negroes dwelt near the whites as barbers, caterers, and coachmen, and laundresses, and waiting maids. But with the removal of the people whom they served, the colored men and women left also, and it is difficult to find an African face among the hundreds of thousands of Europeans south of 14th Street. On Pell Street, in the Chinese Quarter, there used to be two colored families on friendly terms with their neighbors, who, however, went uptown for their pleasures and their church. It is not until we reach 3rd Avenue and 43rd Street that we have come to the East Side Negro Tenement. From this point, such houses run a straggling line chiefly between 2nd and 3rd Avenues to the Bronx, where the more well-to-do among the colored live. At 97th Street and on up to 100th Street, dark faces are numerous. About 650 Negro families live on these four streets and around the corner on 3rd Avenue. Occasionally, they live in houses occupied by Jews or Italians. Above this section, there are a number of Negro tenements in the 130s between Madison and 5th Avenues, almost a west side neighborhood since it adjoins the large colored quarter to the west of 5th Avenue. On the whole, the east side is not often sought by the colored as a place of residence. Their important churches are in another part of the city, and every New Yorker knows the difficulty in making a way across Central Park. Yet, the neighborhood is not uncivil to them, and one rarely reads here of race friction. Doubtless, this is part owing to the smallness of the population, all of Manhattan east of Fifth Avenue containing but 14% of the apartments occupied by colored in the city, but it is partly, too, that Jews and Italians prove less belligerent tenement neighbors than Irish. Five years ago, those of us who were interested in the Negro poor continually heard of their difficulty in securing a place to live. 
Not only were they unable to rent in neighborhoods suitable for respectable men and women, but dispossession, caused perhaps by the inroad of business, meant a despairing hunt for any home at all. People clung to miserable dwellings where no improvements had been made for years, thankful to have a roof to shelter them. Yet all the time, new law tenements were being built, and Gentile and Jew were leaving their former apartments in haste to get into these more attractive dwellings. At length, the Negro got his chance, not a very good one, but something better than New York had yet offered him, a chance to follow into the houses left vacant by the white tenants. Owing in part to the energy of Negro real estate agents, in part to rapid building operations, desirable streets near the subway and the elevated railroad were thrown open to the colored. This Negro quarter, the last we have to note and the newest, has been created in the past eight years, when the Tenement House Department tabulated the 1900 census figures for the borough of Manhattan and showed the nationalities and races on each block, it found only 300 colored families in a neighborhood that today accommodates 4,473 colored families. This large increase is on six streets, West 99th between 8th and 9th Avenues, West 100 and 19th between 7th and 8th Avenues, West 133rd on 136th Streets between 5th and 7th Avenues, with a few houses between 7th and 8th and on Lenox Avenues. There are colored tenements north and south of this, and while these figures are correct today, they may be wrong tomorrow. For new tenements are continually given over to the Negro people. Moreover, on all these streets are colored boarding and lodging houses, crowded with humanity. Houses today fall into the hands of the Negro as a child's blocks placed on end tumble when a push is given to the first in the line. The New York Times in August 1905 gives a graphic account of the entrance of the colored tenant on West 99th Street. Two houses had been opened for a short time to Negroes when the other house owners capitulated and the colored influx came. The street was so choked with vehicles Saturday that some of the drivers had to wait with their teams around the corners for an opportunity to get into it. A constant stream of furniture trucks loaded with the household effects of a new colony of colored people who were invading the choice locality is pouring into the street. Another equally long procession moving in the other direction is carrying away the household goods of whites from their homes of years. The movement is not always so swift as this, but it is continuous. This last colored neighborhood perhaps ought not to be spoken of as belonging to the poor, not to Lanier's poor whose door pressed so tighteningly inward. Here are homes where it is possible with sufficient money to live in privacy and with the comforts of steam heat and a private bath, but rents are high. And if money is scarce, the apartment must be crowded and privacy lost. Moreover, vice has made its way into these newly acquired streets. The sporting class will always pay more and demand fewer improvements than the workers and, unable to protect himself, the respectable tenant finds his children forced to live in close propinquity to viciousness. Each of these new streets has this objectionable element in its population. 
For while some agents make earnest efforts to keep the property they handle respectable, they find the owner wants money more than respectability. In our walk up and down Manhattan, turning aside and searching for Negro-tenanted streets, we ought to see one thing with clearness, that the majority of the colored population live on a comparatively few blocks. This is a new and important feature of their New York life, and in certain parts of the city, it develops a color problem. For while you seem an inappreciable quantity when you constitute 2% of the population in the borough, you are of importance when you form 100% of the population of your street. This congestion is accompanied by a segregation of the race. The dwellers in these tenements are largely newcomers, men and women from the South and the West Indies, seeking the North for greater freedom and for economic opportunity. Like any other strangers, they are glad to make their home among familiar faces, and they settle in the already crowded places on the West Side. Freedom to live on the east side next door to a bohemian family may be very well, but sociability is better. The housewife who timidly hangs her clothes on the roof her first Monday morning in New York is pleased to find the next line swinging with the laundry of a Richmond acquaintance who instructs her in the perplexing housekeeping devices of her flat. No chatting foreigner could do that. And while to be welcome in a white church is inspiring, to find the girl you knew at home in the next pew to you is still more delightful when you have arrived, tired and homesick, at the great city of New York. So the colored working people, like the Italians and Jews and other nationalities, have their quarter in which they live very much by themselves, paying little attention to their white neighbors. If the white people of the city have forced this upon them, they have easily accepted it. Should this 2% of the population be compelled to distribute itself mathematically over the city, each ward and street having its correct quota, it would evince dissatisfaction. This is not true of the well-to-do elements, but of the mass of the Negro workers whose homes we have been visiting. Loving sociability, these newcomers to the city, and it is in the most segregated districts that the greater number of Southern and British-born Negroes are found, keep to their own streets and live to themselves. If they occupy all the sidewalk as they talk over important matters in front of their church, the outsider passing should recognize that he is an intruder and to take to the curb. He would leave the sidewalk entirely were he on Hester Street or Mulberry Bend. Newcomers to New York usually segregate, and the Negro is no exception. While congestion and segregation seem important to us as we look at these colored quarters, I suspect that the matter most pertinent to the Negro newcomer is not where he will live nor how he will live, but whether he will be able to live in New York at all whether he can meet the landlord's agent the day he comes to the door. For New York rents have mounted upwards as have her tenements. The Phipps model houses built especially to benefit the poor charge $25 a month for four tiny rooms and bath. And while this is little more than the dark old rooms would bring, it takes about all of the $25 you make running an elevator to get a flat in New York. 
what wonder that once secured, it is overrun with lodgers or that if privacy is maintained, there is not enough money left to feed and clothe the growing household. The once familiar song of the colored comedian still rings true in New York. Rufus Rostis Johnson Brown. What you going to do when the rent comes round? End of Where the Negro Lives by Mary Y. Tovington and Francis Boaz. Recording by Donald Fitzgill, Jr.